Well, good morning once again, church. It's good to be with you. Uh, for those who may not know me or not recognize me without the beard, and you should have seen the beard, it was always the one. Uh, I am the other Pastor Mark here at Northgate, uh, and it is good to be with you once again. I'm excited to let you know that we will begin, uh, uh, not a new sermon, we're returning to our study in the book of Acts this morning. Uh, so if you have your Bibles, uh, you want to grab one from the pew in front of you, I uh, encourage you to open your Bibles to Acts chapter 9 this morning. And some of you, again, may be new. Some of you may have forgotten. We've actually been working through the book of Acts sort of a little bit at a time. A little bit one year, a little bit in the next year. Because uh, Acts is a pretty big book and it's just easier to digest if you have sort of more bite-sized pieces. Uh, and again, as usual, I want to encourage you to be reading ahead. Uh, especially for next week. Next week, we want to be tackling most of chapter 10. So it's a lot to cover. And yeah, reading ahead will really give you sort of, help you get the most out of our study and our time together. But for now, we have a lot to cover. So let's pick up uh, where we left off a year ago, sometime in 2022, uh, in Acts chapter 9, verses 31 to 43. As we jump back in time to see this moment of ministry, mission, and miracles in the early church. So beginning in Acts 9, verse 31, it says this, So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. Now as Peter went here and there among them all, he came down also to the saints who lived in Lydda. There he found a man named Aeneas, bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. And immediately he rose, and all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. Now there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. She was full of good works and acts of charity. In those days she became ill and died. And when they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. Since Lydda was near Joppa, and the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men to him, urging him, please come to us without delay. So Peter rose and went with them. And when he arrived, they, they took him into the upper room, and all the widows stood beside him weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas made while she was with them. But Peter put them all outside, and he knelt down and prayed. And turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes. When she saw Peter, she sat up. And he gave her his hand and he raised her up and then calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive. And it became known throughout all Joppa and many believed in the Lord. And he stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon, a tanner. Let's pray. Father God, as we look at your word once again, we ask that, Lord, you would be our guide, you would be our teacher, uh, Lord, that you would be our inspiration. Uh, Lord, as we look at these things, and that, Lord, you would just, you would truly speak to us, both as individuals and as a church, uh, a message that we need, to, we need to hear about who you are and, Lord, how you are at work in our church and in our lives. 
Uh, Lord, may we come today with just a hunger and a desire uh, for the word of God. And Lord, may it, may it just leave us transformed. Uh, may we be different people having heard and, and dwelt in your word, uh, Lord, this day together. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So as I said, we're back in the book of Acts this morning. And the book of Acts is really, it's a history of Jesus' disciples and the early church. It really continues the story. Uh, you know, the, the, the story begun in the Gospels with Jesus and his ministry, uh, and it continues uh, into the church. And these are exciting times. In fact, you'll often hear people saying something along the lines of what we need today is for churches to return you know, to their New Testament roots. We need to be more like the early church, more like the New Testament churches. But that always sort of begs the question, well, exactly which New Testament church are they referring to? Uh, do they mean the church in Jerusalem with its rampant infighting and often blatant racism? Do they mean the church in Thessalonica that had simply gotten lazy and they were just waiting around for Jesus to return? Do they mean the church in Colossae that was struggling with false believers? Or do they mean the church in Corinth that had people committing sexual sins that made even the pagans blush? Because the reality is that in the early church, just like today, there are no perfect churches. But you know what? As we take a closer look at the book of Acts, what we do see, there's one thing that that really does, I think, set the early church apart. There's one sort of common theme that runs throughout the book of Acts, through the church from start to finish, from place to place, and that is throughout the pages of the book of Acts, we see a church that is on a mission, which is what we see in our passage before us, even as it begins with the words in verse 31. It says, The church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. Now that verse is basically, it's a summary verse for, you know, basically everything that's happened to the church up until this time. And a lot has actually happened uh, to get us to this point. Because again, it's chapter 9. We're joining a story that's already in progress. Because back, way back in chapter 1 of the book of Acts, you know, Jesus, after his resurrection, he gives his followers their mission. Uh, Acts 1, verse 8, Jesus says to them, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and to the ends of the earth. That was the mission of the church. And you know, the rest of the book of Acts is just the church living that out, the church trying to make that happen. And then Jesus, as we know, he's taken up to heaven, and after a short wait, you know, the Holy Spirit descends in power, and they have the day of Pentecost, and you, we, thousands of people are saved and added to their number of the church. And then the disciples, they go about healing and preaching the gospel and the church grows some more and the authorities try to stop them, but you know the church still grows some more. And then those in power, they begin arresting people and trying to intimidate believers, but the disciples just become more bold and the church grows more. That is until about, well, it's chapter, beginning chapter six, but finally Stephen a deacon in the early church, he's martyred. Uh, they don't like some of the stuff he's saying. And, and it's kind of a tipping point. And that's where Saul, you know, the persecutor of the church, enters the picture. And things really sort of begin to get ugly in Jerusalem for believers. But you know what? Even then, 
the church simply spreads out. And as believers flee Jerusalem, they take the good news with them. And salvation actually spreads to the point where even Samaria, even Samaritans are being saved with the good news of Jesus Christ. And now as we come to our passage, Luke, who's the author of the book of Acts, he spent about the last 31 verses telling us actually about the conversion of Saul. This Saul, the persecutor, has taken his first steps of becoming Paul the Apostle. And because of that, there's this time of peace, which is what Acts 9, 31 is probably talking about. But before Luke continues with that story of Paul, which picks up again in Acts 13, he wants to just quickly give us a window back into the church in Jerusalem. Because during all of this time that things were going on, you know, Peter and the other followers of Christ, they hadn't been idle. And even in this brief look that we get at at Peter's ministry in our passage this morning, we see that the Lord was at work through Peter and his ministry in, in, in powerful ways. In fact, they were literally miraculous. Because even in our passage, about 10 or so short verses, we see no less than three miracles taking place. Each one sort of greater than the one before it. But that brings up for us the topic of miracles this morning. And I'll be honest with you, as a pastor, miracles are kind of tough topics to preach on. Because it can be hard to understand the place that miracles you know, play in our lives today and in our churches. So before we jump into this passage proper, let's, let's just try and clear up a few things around this idea of miracles when it comes to ministry and their place in the church. And there's four things I want us to see here. Four things we should know about miracles. And the first was this, that even in the early church, miracles were not common. Uh, maybe they were more common today, but notice miracles were still sort of wondrous enough that people were still amazed when they saw them. Miracles were still, even in the early church, out of, ordina- out of the ordinary events. Of course, they were also significant events in the church, so well, we, we hear about them when they happen, just like Luke records these ones for us in our passage, but we shouldn't get the impression that you know, in the early church, it was miracles all the time, everywhere, you know, all at once. The second thing I think we should know about miracles is that miracles really, they teach us that our God can do amazing things. Miracles remind us that the God that we love and the God that we serve is almighty and that nothing, nothing is impossible for him. And you know, I still believe that's true. I still believe that God can do the impossible in our lives and in our church. You know, I'd never want to put God in a box and say, you know what, God isn't doing that anymore. Or say that God is no longer in the miracle business in that way. God is still a God of miracles. And he's still a God of answered prayer. But that leads us to the third point about miracles. And I think this is sort of the hardest one for us. Because it's clear that miracles, when they happen, they, they happen according to God's plan and God's purposes and God's timing. And that means sometimes from a human perspective, we just don't understand the things that God is doing or why he's doing them or the way that he is doing them. You know, we don't know why. Sometimes one prayer is answered and another seems to go sort of unheard. A lot of times we think, we start blaming ourselves. We think, well, it must be us. We must be what's different. You know, maybe we lack enough faith or that our prayers aren't powerful enough. You know, it's interesting, even among the apostles, 
in the book of Acts. You know, sometimes God would work in miraculous ways in their lives, but sometimes he wouldn't. In the book of Acts alone, we see that in Acts 12, Peter, he's arrested. He's put in jail. That night, angels break him out of jail and set him free. But in the very same chapter, James is arrested, and he's put to the sword and killed. We don't know. Another example is seen in the life of Paul. You know, we read in Paul, in, in Acts chapter 19, verse 11 and 12, while Paul was in Ephesus, it says, God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. So that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick and their diseases left them and evil spirits came out of them. And yet in another time in Paul's ministry, uh, Paul says in the book of Philippians that, Philippians that his fellow worker, Epaphrodus, he gets sick and he nearly dies. And despite Paul's prayers, it is only by the grace of God that he lived. Miracles are unpredictable. Because they happen according to God's timing and God's purposes and God's wisdom and God is sovereign. And he does things his way. And that means we may not understand why. God answers our prayers the way he does, but we still need to trust him when we pray. We, we need to trust in his wisdom, trust in his answers, trust in his timing, trust, yeah, in his wisdom. Which leads me to the final observation about miracles. And that's just to say that miracles, they're never done by God just to impress people. Uh, miracles are not God flexing his biceps and just saying, look what I can do. Uh, you know, there's, there's always a greater purpose to it. In fact, that's what, that's what the Pharisees kept trying to get Jesus to do. Jesus, just show us a sign. Just show us something. Like, just flex your muscles. Show us your strength. God, Jesus said, a wicked generation asked for a sign. That's not what these things are about. There's a bigger purpose to what I'm doing and trying to accomplish. And for the most part, the purpose of miracles that we read about in the Bible, especially in the New Testament, the greater purpose is to draw people, God drawing people to himself. You know, even in the book of John, the gospel of John, John, John calls the miracles of Jesus, he calls them signs, that Jesus performed a sign. And he says in John 20, beginning in verse 30, he said, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. You see, miracles are not about just being spectacular. Ultimately, they're about salvation. Miracles are, are, are to point people to God. And with that in mind, let's look at this passage we have before us now. And these three miracles of Peter. And the story kind of really speaks for itself. Beginning in our passage, verse 32. It says, Now as Peter went here and there among them, he came down also to the saints who lived in Lydda. And there he found a man named Nais, bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. So we have this little town named Lydda, which was about, it was a good day's walk. Good day's walk is about 20 miles, a little bit more than that. It was a good day's walk northwest of Jerusalem. And we find Peter there, and he's going about his ministry duties. He's visiting this town, you know, encouraging the believers, teaching them. You know, it's a pastoral visit. But while he's there, Peter runs into a man 
who's been paralyzed for eight years. Just take a moment to pause and try to put yourself in that man's place. Because he wasn't that way from birth. You know, it happened to him. Once he was young, once he was healthy, once he was able to enjoy life, once, you know, just like us, he took all the benefits of his health for granted. But then something happened. Maybe it was an accident that somehow crippled his body. Maybe it was a disease, you know, that stole away his control. But suddenly for him, everything is different. And where once he enjoyed health and freedom, now for eight years he's been unable to move, unable to work, unable to visit friends and family. He's been completely dependent on others, even for the simplest of his needs. And for Aeneas, he must have felt like his best days were behind him. And maybe that's why we even have, we have no indication that Aeneas even asked Peter to be healed. In fact, Peter's the one who finds him. And yet look what Peter does in verse 34. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. And immediately he rose. And in this instant, Jesus makes a change in this man's life that no one thought was possible. And if you want to see how amazing that was to the people, look at verse 35. And all the residents of Lydda and Sharon, that's the region around there, they saw him and they turned to the Lord. Aeneas was healed and a town was saved. And if you think that is something, just wait, because Peter's just getting warmed up. Look at verse 36 as the story continues. Now, there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. She was full of good works and acts of charity. In those days, she became ill and died, and when they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. And since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter... Uh, was there. They sent two men to him, urging him, please come to us without delay. So Peter rose up and went with them. And when he arrived, they took him to the upper room and all the widows stood beside him, weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas had made while she was with them. So miracle number two in our passage begins with this woman named Tabitha. And even from this little bit that we hear about her, we can tell she was an amazing woman. We know that she was well-loved, well-respected in the community and in the church. She was generous. She was loving. She had great compassion for the poor. And she, you know, she took the, that call to care for the poor seriously. And she met needs in practical ways. And it would have been, I think, something to be in that room with Peter, you know, in that moment as, you know, as they, they tell Peter about this woman's life. You can imagine the stories they told of how, you know, she had touched different people in their city with these articles of clothing that she had made. You know, a shirt for a little boy, a dress for some curly-haired little girl, a robe for a young mother, garments for some widow. Because, you know, maybe Tabitha wasn't going to be able to solve all of the financial challenges of all the poor in her community single-handedly, but she knew, I can make clothes. She couldn't do everything, but she could do something. And she did, and she met that need. And because of that, she touched so many people's lives with the love of Christ. And her death left this hole in the heart of the community. But as we're about to see, God wasn't finished with Tabitha yet. And verse 40 tells us, but Peter, 
He put them all outside and he knelt down and he prayed and turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes and when she saw Peter, she sat up. And he gave her his hand and raised her up and then calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive. And can you picture that moment? Can you just sort of imagine what would it be like if you had been there? When this woman who was dead I mean, they were told they already began washing the body, preparing her for burial. When, you know, Peter closes the door and then a few minutes later the door opens and Tabitha is standing there in the room. I don't think we could even imagine the excitement and the joy of a moment like that. And it wasn't just for the church. It wasn't just for the believers in that room. The whole town was in awe. One preacher put it like this. He said, imagine when Tabitha went to work the next day or when people saw her in the market on the street and they would ask, Tabitha, why haven't we seen you around lately? And Tabitha would say, well, I was dead. But God made me alive again. And what a testimony that would have been. And we're even told, verse 42, and it became known throughout all Joppa and many believed in the Lord. And again, we see this moment where the power of Christ is made known through a miracle and salvation is the result. And those must have been such exciting times to have been witness to. I mean, miracles were happening. People were being healed. People were being brought back to life. Entire towns were believing in Christ. So with two miracles down, what could God possibly do next? I mean, how does God top that? Well, as we see, God's greatest miracle is still to come. And for our final miracle, we look at verse 43. And he, that's Peter, he stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon, a tanner. I mean, wow. I mean, healing the sick and raising the dead are one thing, but that is amazing. I did not see that coming. So what do you think? Did you catch that last miracle? And I'm going to give you a hint because this miracle was something that was actually happening inside of Peter's heart. Because in the Jewish culture in that day, a tanner, which Simon was, was a person considered ceremonially unclean. Their occupation they called for them, they made leather. I mean, they called for them to work with dead animals. And to be frank, their jobs stank, literally. I mean, they had to use things like animal dung and urine in order to make leather. Tanners were outcasts. They were looked down upon. It was even said that if a woman married a man and later found out his occupation was a tanner, it was grounds for divorce. And yet by being willing to stay at the house of Simon, who was a tanner, we see that God is moving Peter away you know, from the bonds of his Jewish legalism and moving him one step closer to freedom in Christ. And make no mistake, that's a miracle. And I want you to hear this clearly this morning. The transformation of a human heart is something that only the power of God can accomplish. And it's so important for us to realize that the miracle that God does within us is more powerful than anything that God could do to us. Because I know that seeing someone healed or seeing someone raised from the dead before our eyes, that would be amazing. But you know, how much better 
to see one, someone's heart transformed, to see people saved. In fact, in preparing for the sermon this week, I was reading Jesus' words in John 14. In verse 12, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these he will do because I am going to the Father. And hearing that, we often think, well, I mean, Jesus healed the sick. He raised the dead. He fed the multitudes. What could be greater works than those? Well, I think Jesus gives us a clue when he says we can do these things because he's going to the Father. We can do these greater works only after his death and his resurrection and only through the power of the coming Holy Spirit, which to me what means what, what Jesus has in mind is that we will have the opportunity to offer people his salvation and the hope of eternal life. Because I truly believe that salvation is the greatest miracle of all. You know, if you pray for someone and you heal the sick, you can change a life. Maybe for five years, maybe for 10 years, maybe for 80 years. That life will be different. But if you offer someone salvation and they accept you, have changed a destiny. You've changed someone's eternity. And we're going to see in the weeks ahead, God was about to use this changing heart of Peter to perform another miracle. A miracle that the Jewish people never thought would happen. Because God was about to use Peter's changing heart to offer and bring salvation to the Gentiles. But that's, for, as I say, a lesson for another day. For us, now in the time we sort of have remaining, let's, let's just conclude by looking at some truths that I think come out of this passage for us this morning. These are a few lessons, a few applications that I don't really want us to miss as we look, you know, to follow in Peter's footsteps here, to follow his example. And these are, each of them's gonna be pretty quick, but I think each one is pretty important. The first lesson I think we can learn from these passages is this one, and it's a big one. And that's, you know, God is still at work in our world, all around us. In fact, I find it really interesting how Luke in this passage is, he's really presenting Peter's ministry as a continuation of Jesus' own ministry. Peter's actually imitating Jesus. For example, in John 5, uh, Jesus heals a man at the pool of Bethesda. He says to the man, get up, take your mat, and walk. In Matthew 9, Jesus heals a layman. He says, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. Mark 2, there's a man paralyzed, he's lower through the roof and healed by Jesus. Again, Jesus says, rise, pick up your bed and go home. So now Peter, when he meets Aeneas, what does he say? He says, rise, make your bed, pick up your mat and walk. It's just what Jesus did. He, Jesus, he, Peter's following Jesus' example, he's continuing the work of Jesus. Another example with Tabitha. Uh, Peter actually uses almost the exact same language that Mar uh, Jesus uses in Mark 5 when he heals Jairus' daughter. In Mark 5, Jesus says, Talitha kumi, which means little girl, arise. And Peter changes only one letter of that when he says, Tabitha, arise. Because the lesson is that God is still at work in the world. And the work that Jesus began is being continued by his followers, each and every day. And that leads us to the second lesson I think this passage makes. And that's if God is working through us, 
We should be making an impact on the people in our communities. I love Tabitha in our passage and how just how brokenhearted the people were when she died. The town itself was in mourning because she was gone. They missed her. And yet there are churches all over North America that if they disappeared overnight, the people around that church would likely not even know they were gone. And they certainly would never miss them. As the church, as followers of Jesus, we should be making an impact in our world. And you know, we don't need to be performing miracles to do that. Sometimes the greatest need in a person's life is for a friend. Sometimes they need a hot meal. Sometimes it's a phone call or a word of encouragement. And again, while individually we can't do everything, we can't meet every single need out there, we can all do something to serve the people around us. We should be finding ways to show the love of Jesus to the people around us. And if we'll allow God you know, to work through our lives, we will have an impact on the people around us. And that leads us to lesson three, I think we get from our passage. And that, again, is we should be looking for opportunities to serve. I love that when Peter gets to Lydda, he, he's never, we're never told if Aeneas was a member of a church or just a guy that Peter meets on the street. But again, it's interesting that we're told Peter is the one who finds Aeneas. It's not the other way around. And I wonder how many people probably walked past Aeneas on his mat every day and they never gave him a second thought, never stopped, never cared. But Peter, we're told, he stopped. Peter saw what other people overlooked day in and day out. And in seeing that need, Peter seized the opportunity to help. And again, so should we, because we are still surrounded by needs. There are needs all around us. There's needs, you know, at people at work. There's needs with people you meet at school, people who are, you know, in the street, in our, around our homes. There's big needs, needs, little needs. And yet so often, even when we see those needs, we, we are hesitant to act. We need to train ourselves to be looking for opportunities to serve. Which brings us to lesson number four this morning. And that's we need to be available when we see those needs. You know, when Tabitha's friends show up, you know, and ask Peter to travel to another city to, in order to help this woman, Peter could have said, you know, I just, I just don't have time for that. I mean, it's, it's pretty far out of the way. I have so much other stuff to do. I just, I just, I can't. I'm booked. But he didn't. He was willing to be interrupted and he was available to serve. And that's another great lesson. Because you know what? You'll never know when God will open a door that he wants you to walk through. And I'll be honest with you. I was meeting with a couple of friends this week from various churches. And honestly, one of the biggest needs in churches since COVID is the need for volunteers. The volunteers have just not come back. One church had to be paying people to just run their children's ministry. People are just less willing to serve. People are just not as available to serve as they were before. But the needs are still there. So again, just like Tabitha, you can make a difference, even if you can only help in one place or in one way or in one life. Be available to serve. 
Which brings us to lesson number five from our passage, and that is share the stories of God's work in your life. You know, I imagine that when Peter got back to Jerusalem, he couldn't wait to tell people what God had done. And the church celebrated the news of God at work. And I want to ask you this morning, do you have a story like that? Because chances are you probably do. You know, miracles may not be common, as I said, but, but God is still at work in our lives in amazing ways all around us. And we could tell those stories. I remember one, a few years back, I was at a church, it was pretty small, and things were just tight financially that year. It was actually in one of my, in all my years of ministry, it was the one time we didn't have money in the bank and we were not going to make budget. It was just wondering if you're going to get paid that week kind of thing. And then one day, a woman walks into my church office, she sits down in a chair, and she just says, I was driving past your church. And I felt God just put a burden on my heart and he told me to stop and write you a check. And I have a number in mind and she's, and she's like, I'm not gonna attend here, I'm not interested, I just, God wants me here and that's it. And she handed me a check and she left and I never saw her again. And it was for a check, it was well over $10,000. And we made the budget that year with four cents to spare. And you wonder, who's the guy that gave that extra four cents? But anyways, it was a miracle. And you know what? This year, God met our financial need at this church too. We should celebrate that. Celebrate answered prayer. Celebrate when we see God at work. We should celebrate when God shows himself faithful and when he surprises us with wonderful things. We should give more testimonies. We should tell more stories about how God is at work in our lives when we see him at work. If you have a story of God's faithfulness in your life, don't keep it to yourself. Celebrate it. And that brings us to our last application this morning, which is simply that we should seek to be a church that continues to pray and trust in the power of God. Because you know what? Our God is great, our God is good, and our God is faithful. And I love the quote that says, you know, as a church... When we rely on organization, we get what organization can do. When we rely on education, we get what education can do. When we rely on eloquence, we get what eloquence can do. But when we rely on prayer, we get what God can do. And prayer needs to be the power behind our ministry. Prayer can inspire the discouraged. It can uphold the weak. It can bless the burden. It can help the hurting. It can provide freedom to the captive and rest for the weary. Prayer can bring redemption to the rebellious and reclaim the wayward. Prayer is our most effective weapon and our most powerful tool as a church. It's been said that Jesus took 12 men who feared nothing but sin and desired nothing but God, and he gave them only the Holy Spirit, the scriptures, and the power of prayer. And those men shook the very gates of hell itself. And 2,000 years later, the church still stands because God does things in answer to prayer. Because we always need to be reminding ourselves that it is not about us. It's all about Christ. Paul says in Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And that doesn't mean as a church we don't work hard or plan well or be generous givers, but we must never lose sight of the fact that there is no substitute for the power of Christ 
in all that we do. When Peter saw a need, he prayed and God moved. And there still needs to be met. There are still people out there who are paralyzed, but they're paralyzed by fear. There are still people out there who are dead, but they're dead in their sins. There are still people who feel rejected, people who are looking for hope, people who need a caring touch or a word of compassion. And there are still people who need Christ. And if we follow Peter's example and look for those needs and we're available to help, and most importantly, we pray and we ask and we seek God in the midst of those needs, I truly believe we will see God at work among us in ways that will amaze us. We'll see people healed. We'll see the brokenhearted restored. We'll see sinners saved. We'll see lives transformed. And we'll see the miracle of salvation taking hold in the lives of the people all around us. Let's pray. Father God, uh, Lord, as we, as we look at this passage this morning, we realize that you are a good God and that, Lord, you are a great God. And that, Lord, you have plans and purposes in all things. And that, Lord, you are working in our world in, in so many ways. In fact, you're working in so many ways that we often overlook them. We often miss them. Sometimes we even dismiss them as coincidence. But, Lord, your power is on display all around us every day. And Lord, may we be a church that relies on you. Lord, may we be a church that understands miracles happen, the miracle of the cross, the miracle of offering people hope, the miracle of presenting eternal life to those who will believe is something that we can still offer. And Lord, as a church, may that be our mission. May we be witnesses, just as you called the early church to be witnesses. May we tell people of your goodness, tell them of your greatness, tell them of your mercy and your grace. May we let them know about your salvation that is available through grace in Jesus Christ. And may we just trust in you in all that we do. Not that we would have power in and of ourselves, but Lord, through the Holy Spirit, we would just work, that we know that we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us, and that, Lord, we would see your power in all that we do as we take that message of hope to a lost world all around us. May we see you truly at work in power in all that we do. In Jesus' name, amen.